Please turn with me to the book of Jude. This is our second week of considering this book together. And if you recall, we saw that the outline here follows a fairly straightforward breakdown. We looked last week at these first three subdivisions, the initial greeting in which Jude identifies himself as a brother of James. And we strongly believe that this is Jesus' earthly brother, as James was. We see the call there, the primary imperative propelling the message of the book forward to contend, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then the bulk of the book that we considered last week was found in this middle section, verses five through 16. We were forced to grasp the certainty. There's no hesitation in Jude's mind that judgment will come to those who have crept in unnoticed into the household of faith, the community of God's children. So we arrive here this week at, the, at verse 17, the call to perseverance. And we might see the breakdown before us this week of these texts here as we finish out the book. As we see the apostolic prediction here in verses 17 through 19, where we're reminded of the apostles' words that it's, it's not strange that what is happening is indeed happening. It's been predicted. This should not catch us off guard. We see then in verses 20 to 21, the call to keep ourselves in God's love, a phrase we must unpack or we'll certainly be confused. And then in verses 22 and 23, the merciful response to the spectrum of those that would fall into this doubting category and those who have been tainted and affected by these false teachers, these intruders into the church. And then lastly, we will rejoice together in one of the most beautiful doxologies in our Bibles. We'll rejoice in what it says together. This is where we're heading. We see, though, that this... uh, Jude grimly depicts, though, how the, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for these people forever that he has he has been presenting in verses five through 16 and verses 17 through 19 serve as somewhat of a link in the chain where he continues on recapping really the diabolical character of these false teachers while leading us to see the Christians response to these individuals in verse 23. So first. The apostolic prediction we read in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. So for the second time now in in Jude's short book, he reminds Christians that they are beloved. They are beloved by God the Father. He calls them to remember the apostles' predictions here. This is not intended to be a a mere mental recall. Oh, yeah, that's nice. No, this is a, a specific recollection that ought to change their lifestyle, that ought to dictate their behavior and affect them deeply. This remembrance imprints itself upon their entire outlook on the Christian life. They must remember that opposition is normal and expected in the last days. 
in the last time, as Jude says. And that is to say that period of time and that the New Testament recognizes as the time following the death and the resurrection of Christ. So Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount warns his disciples to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them, he says, by their fruits. The Apostle Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 29 and 30, reminding them, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in after you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And then with virtually the exact same wording, the Apostle Peter, possibly drawing upon Jude's words, he says this. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. It's pretty clear on that. Following their own sinful desires. So as we mentioned last week, how do you conceive of the Christian life? How do you understand what following Jesus looks like or ought to look like in a very real sense normal christianity in a normal gospel preaching church in the last days will look like believers contending against scoffers who follow ungodly passions who are divisive and worldly people devoid of the spirit of god so he says expect it Expect it. If you would follow me, this will come. So with God's help, this is why the the leadership here at Eden seeks to even guard our our church membership carefully. We seek to not just greet anyone with a smile and say, you seem to be a dear soul. Come on in. There's care given. And even for those of you who've walked with Christ and, and the Lord knows your heart and you've been Christians for maybe twice as long as I've been alive. But there's a, an invitation to please, would you re-articulate for me the gospel? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ and why, why do you believe that you are assured that, it has, that, that the Spirit of God has caused you to be born again? Tell me some of these things so that we don't assume too much and that we give care to this word of caution that our Lord and the apostles give to us. We know that Satan would love to see Eden Baptist Church overrun and destroyed from within by wolves. So it's our prayer that we'd be faithful shepherds, providing tender watch care over the flock. Jude transitions his focus now from the false teachers and onto the believer's active response to these false teachers. He now offers a number of commands now in verses 20 and 21. So we see now the call to keep ourselves in the love of God. Jude writes, but you, beloved, the third use of that favored word, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That leads to eternal life. So in these two verses, Jude centers on one primary imperative here. 
There is one verb among the others that stands out. Keep. Keep yourself in God's love. The surrounding participles here, building, praying, waiting, they bear significant weight in themselves, quite a lot actually, but they function to support this main verb, keep. So, Jude's point is this. Christian, keep yourselves in God's love. How, we ask? By building yourself up in your most holy faith. By praying in the Spirit. And by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The New International Version provides a little bit more interpretive help here when it translates these verses But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So either way, these verbs enhance our understanding and answer our natural question. What does this look like? What does it look like to keep yourself in the love of God? And Jude says, building, praying, waiting. They help us immensely. But before we press forward, how does this phrase strike you? How does it just naturally fall upon your your ears, your even Christian ears as a, as a follower of Christ? You find yourself exhorting one another, maybe in the lobby after after church or on a Wednesday or after departing from a Bible study. Hey, we'll see you next week. Keep yourself in the love of God. It's just not a common phrase that we use, much less really understand. So what does it mean here? On verse 1 of Jude's letter, he makes it clear that believers are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So here it's clear that God's new covenant people are called, kept, and securely held in God's love for Jesus Christ. So Jude will recapitulate this very word in the concluding doxology. He's going to bring it back at the end of his letter. So we cannot accuse him of, or, of advocating a, a good works will earn us salvation sort of approach in verse 21. Certainly not the case. However, keeping oneself in God's love appears to be Jude's remedy against the false teaching that is being barraged right at them, right at this church. So, what does keeping ourselves in God's love look like? Let's let Jude expound upon it. It looks like building yourself up in your most holy faith. So this means, if you recall, that the faith once for all delivered to the saints in verse 4, is not merely a set of truths that we just ascribe to, like, yep, that's the tribe I belong to, and that's what they believe, and so let's, let's get all excited about it and, and contend for it. No, it's much more than that. It is the most holy faith that one's entire life is to be built upon. And Jude will explain that in, in the next couple verses. He uses the metaphor of building something on a foundation. Okay, we've heard this before in the New Testament, right? But it is not a metaphor that is used in the same way every time you read it. So it could be a bit confusing. The Apostle Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians 3, 
when he warns against building on any other foundation other than Jesus Christ. So here the foundation is clearly Jesus. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, where the foundation of the church is seen as that of the apostles and the prophets teaching, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. There again, a, a different angle on it. In 1 Peter 2, Christians are seen as living stones being built up into this temple that is the family of God. So Jude's not contradicting these there. He's simply adding a a fresh perspective on this old metaphor that's used time and time again. Building yourself up in your faith looks essentially like Peter's description of adding certain things to our faith. In 2 Peter 1, where he writes this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, add to your faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep, there's a, a favorite word of Jude's, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In one sense, it is blasphemous to think that we can add anything to our faith. And yet, in another sense, which the New Testament uses freely and frequently, we do add to our faith. We add maturity, Christian virtue, fruits of the Spirit, endurance, and on and on the list could go. This is the reality we must simply hold in tension not embracing one over the other, but both. We cooperate with God's Spirit in the upbuilding of our faith. The second thing Jude says here of how we keep ourselves in the love of God is by praying in the Spirit, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, some have wanted to interpret this as a special kind of prayer, one that is charismatic in nature, perhaps a a justification of, of speaking in tongues a private prayer language type of idea, and they've, they've latched on to this phrase here. I think that's pretty doubtful. For the same phrase is used in Ephesians 6, verse 18, and pray in the Spirit. But then it adds, in all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. So this would seem to imply that praying in the Spirit should characterize every believer's prayer at all times. And even the most charismatic believers would not expect speaking in tongues to characterize every prayer in every context at all times. So what Jude means here is that our prayers should be offered in submission to the Holy Spirit's will and and being guided by his enablement. The indwelling presence of the Spirit is the precise gift that Jude says the false teachers are devoid of. They don't have this gift. So for a moment, think about this. Praying in the Spirit. This is one of the ways we keep ourselves in the love of God. Do you value, or do you, like me, undervalue the gift of God's Spirit? Do you rightly assess this 
unbelievable gift that God has given to his people in his spirit. It is he who regenerates us. It's he who empowers us for service, sanctifies us, distributes spiritual gifts to us, illumines the scriptures to us, dwells in us, bears witness in us that we are God's children, comforts us, seals us for the day of redemption as the phrase we just sung and come praise and glorify and so much more. Imagine for a moment you have someone in your life, a friend per se, who is quietly behind the scenes working on your behalf in thousands of ways. Perhaps I'm describing parenthood. And you never so much as thank them for this ongoing ministry to you. It's just there all the time. And if you pull the plug on it, you'd fall apart. Your whole life would change. And you never stop to return grateful thanks. I fear we do this so often with regard to the Holy Spirit. May God help us pray in the Spirit. Be, be cognizant of this aspect of our prayers. That we would be submitting our wills and praying in the power of this member of, of, of the Godhead. Building ourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Spirit. These are not new truths to us. The concepts are not brand new. In fact, the youngest believers in this room can grasp them. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Profoundly true, yet profoundly simple. Jude doesn't envision a mystical out-of-body experience or a mysterious transcendental approach to praying in the Spirit. Rather, it is our personal prayers to God by means of God's Spirit strengthening our faith and our affections then begin to soar as we keep ourselves in God's love through the gift of prayer. You know this if you have walked with Jesus that when you when when maybe the the winds of doubt blow through you as we just sung Christ the sure and steady anchor and you begin to then pour out your heart before God and your prayer life begins to be ratcheted up to a whole different way in which you've related to the Lord before, and it is sweet. And you know that that trial will be the better, is all the better for the, the storms that we endure. You, you know that experientially. The third imperative here instructs us that we are to keep ourselves in God's love by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Jude prayed in verse 2 that mercy would be multiplied to his fellow brothers and sisters. But here it's an eschatological mercy that's in view. The mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ when he will present us blameless and faultless before the Father with great joy. Again, we read here a helpful thought by one theologian by the name of Tom Schreiner, he says this, one of the means by which we continue in our love for God is if we continue to long for the day when Jesus Christ will show us his mercy, when we will when he will grant us the gift of eternal life and we will be perfected forever. Those who take their eyes off their future hope will find that their love for God is slowly evaporating and it will be evident that their real love is for the present evil age. 
Now, the thought may still be lingering in your mind. I just don't like the sound of this me keeping myself in the love of God stuff. I just don't like the sound of it. It doesn't gel well with the rest of what I believe about the sufficiency of Christ and my standing before him. Well, perhaps these words from John Piper would be from these exact verses would help us. I think he summarizes it very well. Over and over in the Bible, we see this. God's action is decisive. Our action is dependent. And both actions are essential. I urge you to resist the mindset that cynically says, if God is the decisive keeper of my soul for eternal life, then I don't need to keep myself in the love of God. And you can see how he's even quoting Jude there. That would be like saying, since God is the decisive giver of life, then I don't need to breathe. No, no, he says. Breathing is the means that God uses to sustain life. So the command to breathe is the command to fall in with the purposes and patterns of God to give and sustain life. God's keeping inspires and sustains our keeping. His keeping is decisive. And our keeping is dependent on his. As a kept people in Christ and for Christ, as Jude says, we must keep ourselves in God's love by building ourselves up in our most holy faith, by praying in the spirit and by waiting for the mercy that will be delivered to us for eternal life. But how do we respond then to those who are being allured and seduced and swept along by these divisive scoffers who have infiltrated the church? Verses 22 and 23 answer this question. Jude writes, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude's penchant here for saying things in threes continues. Here he seems to envision three kinds of strugglers who, to varying degrees, have been influenced by the false teachers. We see this downward digression here in the text, moving ever closer to this wholesale embrace of these false teachers' doctrine. Have mercy on those who doubt, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And lastly, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. So the first phrase here in verse 22, in mercy, it is that believers stand. Verse two makes that clear. Jude two in believers in in mercy, believers stand in mercy, believers hope. We just saw that, the hope, we we waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now it is in mercy that believers minister. We stand in this mercy, we hope in it, and now we extend it out. We bend it out towards others. Those who are doubting are to be treated with mercy. So even with regard to doubt among professing Christians, our Savior's words in the Sermon on the Mount ring true, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
I wonder how many in this room this morning have struggled with doubt. Undoubtedly, all of us to different degrees and perhaps to different intensity levels at different points in your life. I don't know this reality as well as some, but the temptation there, I believe, in hearts, especially when it's significant doubt, is to be quiet. To not say anything for fear that you might be put in that compartment or viewed by other Christians where no good Christian ought to be. Doubting significant things about the Christian faith. You may have doubts about a certain biblical truth. You may be wrestling with the Bible's perspective on human sexuality. You may be wrestling with the trustworthiness of the Bible. Is this really the word of God? Maybe the concept of substitutionary atonement just doesn't make sense and you've begun to significantly doubt it. Perhaps it's something else. Please know this. This church, its members, its leadership, desire to show mercy, to come alongside, to patiently spend whatever time is necessary to simply keep unfolding the Word of God and letting the text of Scripture and God Himself authenticate Himself to you and and to perhaps in His grace quell or, or squelch these doubts. But it is with mercy that God's people are to extend themselves in this way. And in the meantime, Jude would encourage you, if this is you, doubtful, significant doubts about the Christian faith, keep yourself in close range of God's love. Stay near God's love. And where is God's love found in most concentrated form? Within His church. It is for His bride. So, Read the Scriptures voraciously with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Worship regularly with God's people. Come, pray in the Spirit with God's people when they gather together. Saturate your life and orient your entire life towards the Christian community for fellowship, for encouragement. And by God's grace, mercy awaits. Verse 23 begins by saying, Save others. By snatching them out of the fire. So the first half of verse 23 here implies another bracket of people who are worse off than the first. It would seem that the opponents have entranced others and they are already beginning to pattern their doctrine and conduct after these intruders who have crept in. The text uses a forceful word here, snatched. The idea here is to to forcibly seize or to take hold of with with force, with power. And the imagery here is vivid. Hell fire awaits, and Christian compassion and a fidelity to the truth compels us as the people of God, as much as is humanly possible, ultimately resting in God and trusting in Him in this, but as much as is humanly possible to save some from ultimate destruction. Do you feel this way towards others? I need to confess, I fear my heart lets people go far too easily. I tell myself things that I've made 
uh, a fairly decent effort to reach out. I've done, and, and, but then I read a verse like this. And I'm convicted. Perhaps that is you as well. We can convince ourselves. I tried to make a phone call. I sent him a text. I never heard back. I wanted to meet for coffee and talk about some of these issues. But it's it's his fault. It's his fault, by the way. It's her fault. Well, it is. Of course it is. But the mercy of God compels us to do this. And some save by snatching from the fire. Just mark it down ahead of time. These situations are going to hurt. They're going to hurt. They're not always going to be pretty. I can recall a, a young believer and his wife, whom Rachel and I discipled for well over a year. This is before moving to Minnesota. And we read scripture with them. We read Christian books with them. We prayed together. We fellowshiped together. We worshiped together in the same church. And after a while, he disclosed a relationship that he'd kept hidden, and it eventually caused him to, as Paul would say, make shipwreck of his faith and to jettison the whole thing that he had seemed to be so avidly and aggressively seeking after. Attempts were made to snatch him from the fires of unbelief, but they were to no avail. This is difficult work. And for every one of these situations, there will be others. There will be some that God promises will come back, will be retrieved. Jude's brother James ends his entire letter with this ministry of retrieval, we might say, where James says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is hard work. And as we know, when we go after people, though, God will use us as his instruments for his glory. The second half of verse 23 says, highlights this final category. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So this final category seems to be implied in this final phrase of verse 23. These are those who perhaps include some of the intruders, these false teachers themselves. But instead of a vitriolic rampage or words of frustration towards them, Mercy is still in order, but mixed with fear. Certainly a healthy fear of God is necessary, but the context here seems to be an appropriate fear of contamination. Jude is possibly drawing upon a number of Old Testament texts that speak to sin's polluting influence, even extending to the garments one wears. As we seek to show mercy to doubters and to save others by snatching them from the flames, Christians must recognize the incredible danger that lies here in false teaching. What we're called to here is impossible without the aid of God's Spirit. It really is. Think about what's involved here. There is a need for truth-motivated courage, a mercy-motivated compassion, a humility that sees the danger, 
and yet a holy hatred for the lies that have shackled down this believer. So many emotions, affections, and truths that, that must go with the, the Christian as he goes to an individual like this. Counseling is not for wimps. Ask those in our midst who are gifted this way. It is hard. But all of us, to different degrees, are called to this. We arrive now at Jude's doxology. The last two verses in his short letter. And likely some of the most encouraging verses in all of Scripture. We read in verse 24 and 25, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jude does not close his letter with the typical greetings and prayer requests that are found in a lot of New Testament letters. Instead, he provides what is arguably the most beautiful doxology in the New Testament. And just as his letter begins firmly rooted in God's calling, his loving and his keeping of his children, he also now ends his letter assuring believers that God is able to keep them from stumbling headlong into apostasy, into falsehood, and ultimately the damning fires of hell alluded to earlier. God will keep you, Christian. God will keep you. That is amazing. All your days. Not for yourself, not for your mansion. That would be nice. But for Jesus Christ. You are His treasured possession. His workmanship. Weeping is entirely appropriate for news like this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul's unbreakable chain in Romans chapter 8 outlines God's redemptive plan for every genuine believer. And that same idea echoes here in Jude. If God calls you to himself, there is no power of hell, no scheme of man that can pluck you from his hand. But he doesn't just keep you from the bad stuff, namely his divine anger and wrath. As great and merciful as that alone is, he doesn't stop there. He presents you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. He presents you, Christian, who He's kept your whole life, and He will present you blameless. Do we really comprehend what's being said here? God's glory, the glory, the glory of God. God's presence, as Jude says, the presence of God, these things are intensely guarded throughout most of the Bible. You can't waltz into these areas. No. And yet here, Jude does not want us to forget. 
we will be presented blameless. And not as if we barely squeak in, but there is great joy. The thought of being near God by itself should cause us to tremble. But for Him to rejoice, to embrace us as clean, blameless children, it's too wonderful to comprehend. Verse 25 concludes by ascribing all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is true in the past, present, and the future. Before all time, and now, and forever. I'll ask you again this week, are you a contender for the faith? As we mentioned last week, perhaps you're contending for a lot of things. You earnestly struggle and strive for certain things, but... It's definitely not the Christian gospel. It's not the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In such case, Jude calls you, by extension, God calls you to repent of your sin and to see faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope. If you are outside of him, you will not be kept. You will not be presented blameless. There will not be great joy when you stand before Jesus. Come to Him. Repent. Bowing your knee in humility may feel like the most humbling, shaming sort of concept for you, but it is the gateway to unspeakable joy in Christ. Believers, are you aware Are you aware of false teaching in our world? Do you live with it as a regular category you you move in and out of quickly in the course of your life, daily life? And not only are you aware, but are you alert to its corrosive, dangerous influence upon your soul? Children, God can help you. God can help you fight. For truth, he can help develop a critical thinking in your interacting with that unsaved friend in your neighborhood or at school or in some other social context where you you talk about sometimes pretty weighty things. God can help you discern truth from error and know that he is greatly pleased when you side with him. And when you believe in his word against all competing ideas, teens, college age, young adults, many in your stage of life, often those raised in solid churches, fall prey to believing that their small gospel preaching church is just so narrow And it's teaching. It's forgotten that there's a really big world out there. And after all, the Mayberry type days of Christianity are long gone. And Christians better get caught up with the times. And on and on that sort of logic goes. What begins as a healthy desire to take ownership of one's faith can easily slip into really the depiction of the false teachers that Jude 
presents. Grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. And before long, all truth is just a negotiable commodity. Middle age, older believers, do you recognize the gift of years that God has given you? False teaching is usually just the same old lies endlessly repackaged and given a fresh makeover. Would you use your wisdom not to express cynical, frustrated opinions, but to lovingly warn and help alert younger believers to ideas and thoughts and lies that you've seen in yesteryear. And younger believers, you know what this means. Stop thinking we know it all. Listen. Listen. Seek out these folks. Hear their stories. Of course, this is why we love to, to see multi-generational um, love for one another within our church. Things such as the teen and focus fellowship events and and all the organic ways in which that happens as well. Steward that gift of years and life that God's given to help, to help warn in some cases. And if he were here with us today, Jude may very well ask us, how are you doing, Christian, at keeping yourself in God's love? How are you doing at building yourself up in your most holy faith? How are you doing at praying in the Spirit? And are you eagerly Waiting the mercy of Jesus in his second coming. It can be so easy, can it, to slip into lazy Christianity. That's so easy, especially for us and where we live in our North American context here. Perhaps, though, you're doubting and lacking assurance of some particular doctrine or even of your own soul standing before God. Speaking directly to this issue, Donald Whitney writes, he says, who is the lazy Christian? Well, lazy Christians are believers sliding on a downgrade to indifference about the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. When they don't feel like reading the Bible, praying, attending public worship, serving in the church, etc., they'll neglect doing so. More and more, other activities take precedence over the things of God in their lives. At first, these other things, work, time with others, home chores, school, errands, seem to interfere only occasionally, but gradually they become the norm. Eventually, there's always some pressing matter that serves to excuse them from spiritual duties and responsibilities. More often than not, the excuse is proffered, I'm too tired. Instead of life characterized by sacrifice for Christ, the discipleship of the lazy becomes just a Christianity of convenience. So it's no surprise when the spiritually lethargic begin to lose confidence. And they should not be surprised that God gives assurance to the diligent and not to spiritual sloths. However, laziness, as was mentioned here, uh, may have nothing to do with it for you. Perhaps you're sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum. 
I recall a good friend of mine being hospitalized in our college years because of this neurotic fixation on his incapacity to fully please God and to obey him all the time. And his depression over the hypocrisy he saw all around him. Wouldn't eat, wouldn't sleep. It's pretty bad. Maybe that's sort of the side of things you would fall on. A fixation on perfectionism. Remember, even though we cooperate by keeping ourselves in God's love, it is Jesus and Jesus alone who ultimately keeps us and who will present us blameless. Finally, rejoice, brothers and sisters. Rejoice. Think about this often this week, the days to come. My prayer is that the book of Jude would would put fresh wind in your sails. Yes, alerting you to the reality and the the dangers that, that certainly come to the people of God. But the apostles, Jesus, he told us that. But that we will be kept We will be kept for Jesus and by Jesus. And we have the the privilege of keeping ourselves in close range to the means of grace. God's church, the scriptures, prayer. These things are ours in Christ. One day we will stand blameless before the King of kings and Lord of lords. May this glorious truth drive us toward holy living and a fidelity to the truth and the continual pursuit of godliness as we earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, while we know that we could never keep our hold in this life. We pray both of these things. We will hold fast to the anchor, but, oh Lord, would you hold us fast. This is a tension we admit we don't understand. But, Lord, if we love you, if we truly comprehend the grace shown to us by Jesus Christ, if we truly comprehend the gift of eternal life and the gift of being named among your family, how could we not but feel compelled to be faithful contenders for the faith, to be cognizant of false teaching and its corrosive influence upon our souls, to build ourselves up in our most holy faith, to pray in the Spirit, to wait more earnestly for your coming, Lord, to keep ourselves in the love of God, and then to extend that same kind of mercy outward. As we have opportunity, as your Spirit prompts us, Father, would you please help us to save some that may be teetering on the fence of throwing in the towel entirely on this faith, this most holy faith. Use us as your instruments, Father, even within this community of faith here. But Lord, help us to be skilled at rejoicing in the fact that we know we will stand before you one day blameless. We do not deserve this, Lord. We shouldn't be there by all accounts. But in Christ, we are kept 
we pray we would keep ourselves in your love. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.